0: Welcome to Brian Talks to Humans, a people's podcast about everyday people. I've been sitting on the audio for this episode for a couple weeks and um, just could not find the time to edit it. So I'm going to push it out to you in a slightly unedited version. Uh, Normally I'll go in there and I'll cut out some ums and uhs and some long pauses. But in the interest of finally getting this episode posted, I didn't do that this time. In this episode, I continue my Season 3 mission the profile socialists, interviewing my friend Jeff. Jeff is a fellow member of the North New Jersey chapter of DSA with me, and I'm really glad he found the time to sit down and have this chat. Not much as far as a life update goes. Uh, still teaching remote, things are still pretty shut down with the pandemic, not too much normal stuff that I can do, but making the best of things. For those of you who are also into fantasy football, though, you can find my work on two websites, uh, one called Dynasty Pros and the other called Fantasy in Frames. I'll also be appearing on one of the Fantasy in Frames podcasts. So I've turned my hobby, which turned into an obsession, into the next step, which is you know creating content uh, about fantasy football. I get my second vaccination shot, Tomorrow, uh, that would be Wednesday the 21st, so the the day after I'm recording this. And that reminds me, a happy 420 to those of you who celebrate. Okay, without further ado, here's my episode with Jeff. Okay, welcome to Brian Talks to Humans. Today's human is...
1: Jeff L.
0: Hey Jeff, uh, thanks for taking the time on a Sunday night to uh, have this conversation with me. Really appreciate it.
1: Oh, thank you. This is exciting. I'm into this. Right on.
0: Um, so you uh put the uh you have one one kid, right?
1: I do. I have one kid, um, Orion is his name. Uh he's three, and being a dad is definitely a trip. <laughs> it's and you're just
0: uh, you're just doing some chores and putting them to bed?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so our, our nighttime routine, right? It's like, you know, dinner, wash up get ready for bed, that sort of thing. It's, it's, uh, it's cool to have like that moment with him before bed. I don't know. It's like a little dad and son thing. And then, you know, my wife will come and help me put him down, but it's, uh, that's cool. Mm. So, um, when did you, uh, when did you get married? We got married eight years ago. We've been together for 12 Twelfth um, of August. Um, uh, my wife, when we first met, was like a recent immigrant from Colombia. Uh, and when we met, you know, she had little to no English, and I had little to no Spanish. And so our our first few dates were really funny, mostly sign language and shouting, but we got through it. <laughs> So
0: uh, let's start then with how we got to tonight, and and in some of the context that I don't know you from, and a little bit about your background. So you said you you grew up in Staten Island, right?
1: I did. Uh, I grew up. I was when I was born. Uh, I was born in Staten Island, but lived in Brooklyn for like two years. Then moved to Staten Island, and then lived there for most of the next twenty five years or so, mm-hmm. um, with a brief stint in Florida. Um, yeah, Staten Island's a, a, an interesting place to say the least.
0: <laughs> yeah. I was going to say that, you know, for someone who eventually, you know, came with your political leanings, that's gotta be an interesting, interesting spot to be in it's, you know, notoriously the like most conservative, if you will, of the five boroughs. And, uh, I remember on, uh, like the, that August, that uh, Mike Brown was killed. Mm-hmm. That um, a couple weeks later, uh, at the beginning of the school year, like these, a bunch of Staten Island teachers got together and wore like NYPD shirts to school the first day of school. Like everybody else is wearing like Black Lives Matter shit because it was like starting to kick off. Then you know it had been around for a year, but it really kicked off like after Mike Brown. And I just remember thinking, Oh
1: man, those poor students. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, Staten Island's definitely a very conservative place. Although, um, you know, and, and speaking for myself, like I wasn't one of those people who had like strong leftist influences growing up. So I was not, you know, anything that I would consider to the left, you know, largely politically all over the place, maybe all the way up through college, maybe like, centrist or, or even center right at times depending on the issue i guess and i think it was probably my wife that radicalized me um and really kind of uh led me down a more left-wing path it was probably just experiencing uh or he- hearing more about her experiences and being like oh wow shit's fucked up mm-hmm. i didn't realize um you know and i grew up in very sheltered homogenous um uh, blue collar. I mean, yeah, like, like middle, like middle-class Staten Island. Um, and, uh, you know, didn't have a lot of variety. It was relatively insular. I mean, it was a little different, or maybe I just perceived it to be different, you know, 20 years ago growing up as opposed to the way it is now, where it's just really, really off the charts, right wing, um, for New York. Um, but yeah, I think I, I, I knew enough to be rebellious always, and so was always throwing myself into different situations. And even though I grew up in a very white, racist, conservative, you know, community or whatever, I think I just always put myself out there to be in other places. Um, and ended up going to high school in the city where I was like one of the, you know, had maybe half a dozen white kids in my school and, you know, had friends all over the five boroughs and even further out. Um, so I, I think I, I sought out, um, to get away from that sort of right wing conservative homogenous life to mm-hmm. try to find something more interesting and expand my mind. And I think, you know, while I still carried a lot of those beliefs and, and, and was not really a particularly good human or, or politically um uh good human i guess or what i would consider now um to be someone who's good i think um you know ultimately it's it set the groundwork for me to kind of be where i'm at today hmm.
0: so uh, this high school uh that you went to in manhattan was it an art school is that why you went to school elsewhere
1: yeah it was art and design high school um I went there and it was cool because, you know, a a lot of it was kids who were just super, super gifted. Um, And then a lot of it was kids that I think for one reason or another just couldn't or didn't want to go to their zone schools. And to some extent that was kind of the bucket that I fell in. You know, I I did a little bit of art here or there. Um, But uh, I think what was really cool in my experience is that, you know, how in high school it's real clicky and like, you get different tables at lunch, for instance, where it was like, you know, like the rocker kids or like, you know, the the really popular kids, really rich kids, like whatever, just in different tables. But what was cool was like, um, I hung out with all the kids that did graffiti as uh, artists. And um, first of all, they were some of the most talented kids in the school, like just sophistication wise and just uh, creativity wise, just into things that like people would never think to do. Um, But then also like, At the table, you'd have like, you know, a super wealthy white Jewish kid from the Upper West Side sitting next to a kid. I got, you know, my friend who was maybe, you know, Guatemalan and from Queens. And then like another friend who was like, you know, Dominican and from East New York. And then another kid who was, you know, and then like me, like white kid from Staten Island, just kind of a non-believer or whatever. And you just had like so many different kids at one table. Um, and that you didn't really, I didn't really experience anywhere else, mm. and so it was cool that like, we synthesized at that at like those lunch tables or in our groups, like how different we all were, and just to like learn about each other in a way that I felt like, like I never would have gotten that in Staten Island. But also, yeah. uh, even in the school itself, you know, everyone was still relatively with their own groups or cliques, and and this group was just so diverse.
0: Mm. Well, it sounds like those those sorts of experiences and hearing p- other people's stories kind of took you out of that, that Staten Island bubble.
1: Yeah, and I would say, like, you, I definitely felt it then, too, like, how different it was going back to Staten Island friends or kids I grew up with. And, like, just the variety experience, or I guess my my life experience at that point, going back and just, you know, for kids who never really left the island, it was like we were worlds apart already
0: mm. right yeah so um your parents were supportive of the art stuff uh, is that how you know you kind of got that um opening
1: to go there or you know what's funny is that my parents i you know so like you know my, you're you're lucky enough to have a mom who's supportive they they moms are always like, you know, my son is the best at whatever, right? And so um, always supported me with things like writing and my art. Um, But they're also like a little laissez-faire as parents and like pretty like not overbearing or pushy. Um, So in a lot of ways, it was like a lot of just my own desire to just get off the island to want to go there. And I like had to create a little portfolio. It was a public school. But you had to create a portfolio and take a little entrance exam and stuff. Um, and so they were just kind of like, yeah, whatever you want to do, do it. I think they freaked out because I was 13 and traveling into Manhattan by myself. And mm-hmm. for, you know, Staten mm-hmm. Island parents, that's like, <clears throat> <laughs> but um, yeah, <laughs> but I mean, they got they got over it. And uh, I was a terrible student. <laughs> Terrible student in high school, o- almost like I cut a lot. I, you know, was just kind of, you know, not uh, yeah. I mean, I barely, barely graduated with passing grades. Um, but I always said that, you know, I-, I valued what I learned from other students more than I ever learned from any of the teachers there in my experience. So like just getting out of, um, just getting out of where I was was really, um, I think what, what brought me where I feel like I am today. Mm-hmm. Right. So I just wasn't a good student, but I learned so much.
0: <laughs> right. Right. Well, you know, I, you know, as somebody who, you know, is a teacher myself, but I also know the value that a lot of education happens outside of school or, or in school from people who aren't teachers, you know, I think that that's certainly valuable, uh, valuable experiences. And it sounds like when you went back to the island. Um, these were some things that maybe, maybe your peers missed out on. You said you were worlds apart. Talk about that more. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, so it's funny. Cause um, you know, when you come out of Staten Island, um, there's, there's not much like if you're a teenager growing up, there's, there ain't shit for you to do. And Um, and to like stay out of trouble, right? So like most kids are just hanging out in somebody's house or on the block, smoking, drinking, whatever. But like, you know, you kind of just go over all the same BS. It's all like local uh, gossip or whatever. Um, And it never really, you never really expand your mind beyond that, I feel. And it's easy to get sort of trapped or comfortable in that um, and feel like, all right, I'm just gonna be on cruise control for the rest of my life. Um and I think you know, going back and feeling like, you know, having all these new ideas and these new experiences, and I'm generalizing here because this isn't the same for everyone, but um, you know, I felt like I are if anyone's ever had like a like a crew of friends they grew up with, um I think you know, most people experience a point in their lives where they realize, like, all right, I, I you know, love these guys for all my heart, because I'm, or friends with all my heart, like, you know, how long I know them for, or whatever. But also our lives are just going in a different directions. So you grow apart. And I think that, you know, for a long time, that's sticks with you. Um, and then you get to look back and realize like, how far you've come or like, you know, what you've gone through. And you, and you think like, you know, you kind of imagine where you would have been had you never quote-unquote escaped right like if I never got off the island what would I be doing what would I look like what would I you know believe and I think uh it's easy to go back now and just think of to look back now and think of uh you know the contrast there
0: right yeah no I, I I definitely identify with that in in several ways um you know um when I got when I got sober um and uh you know uh and and more politically radical um i just just had less and less in common with with folks that i you know that i loved for years in some really formative years of my life and um you know i I think a lot of us have have that story um particularly i think those of us who end up you know as quote-unquote radical as as you and i uh tend to be but you um you went to college though on, on the Island. So uh, talk about that.
1: Yeah. So college was a funny experience. So I, I went to college in Staten Island. So it's uh, it, was, it is, or I think it still is a CUNY school. Um, so I did apply like a few schools that were um, for writing and stuff, which was more of a passion for me. Um, and was really, um, you know, I, I was probably not in the best place in my life and probably not, uh, in the best mindset for school and I you know I, I hear people get pushed into going to college straight out of high school right and I mm-hmm. I just think about where I was out of high school and I shouldn't have gone to college right so like I did like two years and I ended up like failing a class or two and was like why am I paying money to go to college and then fail right so I, I like took a little time off I went back for like a semester. More time off. It took me like seven or eight years to to finish my bachelor's degree. Um, I ended up my last few years. I I I, uh, I did much better. Um, my experience was interesting because again, it was it was Staten Island, so still relatively a conservative ish um, uh, hellscape. <laughs> but uh, you know, there were really bright. Um, Right, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There, there were really great experiences baked in there. Um, and one comes to mind. So I had um, the very indomitable Sarah Shulman as a uh, professor of, for writing in, in CSI. Um, and Lord knows what she is doing there. Um, but Sarah Shulman is like a sort of titan in the LGBTQ community um, in terms of, um, you know, not just her writing, but also her philosophy and her place. Um, and I kind of didn't, I really loved her class, but I also didn't, I think, appreciate what I had when I had it. Right. Um, and I was just kind of a shithead at the time. So like really also didn't like, couldn't even appreciate it, I think at the time, but also like, I was surrounded by Occupy Wall Street talk, right? Um, and, you know, being someone who was still politically like centristy and maybe centrist left or centrist right, I still just liked this idea of like controversy and, and just kind of being rebellious and whatever. So I was still like receptive to it. Mm. Um, and I think that that really um, planted a seed in my head. You know, I wasn't. There were a lot of students who went and who were part of it, and and regrettably I was not. Um, but I was also very receptive to it, and people who like mocked it or made fun of it or or you know a lot of the people around me who just had negative opinions of it. I think I felt myself defending it more and like I think there's something like like not like with a a real political theory, but more like there's something to this more than where than we're talking about. And I think it's worth paying attention to.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And then I think, right. So like coming out of college with uh, writing, uh, English and writing, and then also a philosophy degree um, made me approach, made me open to a lot of ideas. Um, and, And in a more like, inquisitive way where I wouldn't just reject something outright. I'd be like, all right, I know this sounds wild, but maybe there's something to this. And I would take the time to really understand what, whatever ideas were there politically speaking. And, and, you know, however many years later, 10 years, 15 years later, now I would say I lean anarchist, which is really funny. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think like those are where those, those seeds get planted. mm. That was my college experience.
0: of I think the Occupy era for a lot of folks was uh, was a turning point, was a touchstone. You know, was uh, we we had just had you know a really the worst economic crisis of of our lifetimes. We, were, we weren't around for the depression, you know, and and this was speaking to a whole lot of whole lot of what was going on, and you know, it 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 you know it, it it radicalized some people, I think you know for some people it at least made them go hmm oh you know, and you know i mean it certainly shifted the conversation around economic inequality for a while, and you know we still talk about the one percent you know so it certainly was was transformative in in that regard um mm-hmm. so what so when do you what about what year do you do you graduate college eventually?
1: Oh, shit. Um, I was probably finally finished when I was like, what, 25 or 26. Mm -hmm. Um, So about 10 years ago, Um, I had already met my wife and she was going to college. Um, And like the fucked up thing for her was that she already had a college degree from Columbia but when you come here to the United States, they just don't honor your degree. They don't mm-hmm. see it as like, all right, you have a diploma. So she had to go back to college to get another degree. Um, and she did. And she ended up becoming a social worker. And she got her master's, too. She's a badass. I, I uh, the, everything that she's had to overcome um, is really impressive to me. And just to persevere through as a, as a you know, as an immigrant um, who didn't speak the language at all. So how'd you meet? We met on the Staten Island ferry. It was her 21st birthday. um, And I was coming home from a baseball game with my dad. And she sat in front of me and we kept making eye contact. And I told my dad, if she looks at me again, I'm going to talk to her. And he was like, I don't know who you are. And he turned around (laughs) and I made her laugh or something. And I ended up sitting next to her and we ended up somehow communicating the exchanging of phone numbers and, you know, I guess the rest is history.
0: Mm. Wow.
1: And so when did she, when did she come here from Columbia? Um, She came here, she got here like six months before we met. So I would say about, you know, 12, roughly 12 years.
0: Mm. Okay. Right. Um, and, uh, what you said earlier that, um, you know, hearing some of her experiences too radicalized you. So, um, talk more about, about that. What, what was it like learning about, um, her background and, and how did that, you know, maybe change the way you were thinking about things?
1: So, you know, I I talked about my sort of experiences in high school a little bit, right. And we spoke a lot about race and, and that sort of thing um and not to be this person but it's definitely true that you know once something touches you in a personal way right you start to see things in a different light and so i mean it's awful that this is often the case but like you know it's the same reason why like you know someone like newt fucking gingrich is like oh you know i don't have a problem with you know the lgbtq community because my daughter is gay or whatever the case is um in the same way, like I didn't fundamentally under, I understood that racism was bad. Right. Um, But I just didn't fundamentally understand how it manifests until I saw how it really affected my wife and and how hard it was for her to be here. Um, One example is she, one of her first jobs, she had like a retail gig and she started and she started with like a group of like three or four other people and everyone else got, You know a a role and then they were like being trained on like how to do x or you know whether it's the register or like restocking whatever and they handed my wife a broom because she was a a latina right and whatever right um so i mean and and, like that was like that's like soft racism compared to like some of the other shit that she experienced Mm -hmm. um you know just customers just being outright like outright vicious and just Mm -hmm. disgusting um And, you know, ultimately, she, you know, would, would have very real emotional responses or be angry or just be upset. Um, And this, you know, this happened even with people who I thought were friends. Um, People would make like jokes about her um, needing papers. And that's why she was dating me and stuff like that. Um, And that shit is awful. And you know, like really affects, you know, the people who are the targets of that stuff. And, and I guess coming to understand that and then coming to understand the immig- like immigration in the United States and like what she had to go through and, and that sort of stuff just made me realize like, Oh man, this shit is fucked up. And, and I think I discovered a leftist politics through the injustices of the immigration system, um, you know, via my wife Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And and, and racism. And I think that that's where it really started. Um, And I started listening more to, you know, the 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 Dream Act battles and stuff like that. Um, And just where the Obama administration fell short. Um, And then, of course, when the lead up to, you know, the 2016 election, you know, I, among among many other people, just. We're like, no, no, no. We, all right, we got to get serious about politics all yeah. of a sudden. And I think that that's what happened for me, too. Right. You know, I, I share that experience. You know, It was the, the Bernie campaign and so on. And I'm, I'm among everyone who, who discovered leftist politics starting with Bernie and then just drifted further left as time went on
0: did did your wife talk much about politics like you know like uh, about the situation in Colombia with the conservative regime there and the you know FARC militia and all that or, or was it something that just she was just not into that
1: or so uh, um i don't want to speak too much for her right okay um, because i'm i'm sure she could have her own podcast episode on this right yeah, yeah. um but uh i think the idea that what bothered her most was that Colombia was most known for that stuff, right? For the, um, you know, the cocaine business and the FARC and, like, that sort of shit. And really, you know, having been to Columbia several times myself now, just realizing how much of a beautiful, complicated, amazing country it is and and the people there. Um, You know, I I think that she had to learn like she became politicized here right and i think it was because right just her identity was political mm-hmm. um and and i think that we probably both radicalized around the same time like mm-hmm. with each other um but i think it was more just her experience here um you know she was definitely aware of like you know the paramilitaries and the FARC in Colombia, and that was of course part of her life in many ways um but also you know i don't know we have shit like that here that's part of our lives in a lot of ways that we don't really think much about true right that we go into other countries and they ask us these questions and we're like oh yeah i guess i just never really even thought about that
0: yeah like nobody Um, uh, asked me about the oath keepers you know what i mean
1: (laughs) right right but or, or like you know um it's hard to even make comparisons. Cause like uh, in many levels, Colombia is very similar to the United States and in, in just more extreme in certain ways than others. But in other ways, it's just completely different. Right. Um, yeah. I, I, it's, that's like a whole can of worms. <laughs> yeah.
0: Right on. So as you're, so as you're radicalizing uh, uh, together and uh, did you do any, um, you talk about the burning campaign being sort of a moment. Did you, do any, um, any organizing with the campaign, any, any work for the Bernie campaign at all? Or.
1: So I did not. Um, we went to several rallies. We, I mean, not officially. I, I did organize some like meetups with friends to go to rallies. Um, my, my wife and I did manage to go and be like the first ones in the door at one of his events and like got to shake his hand and stuff. because we were mm-hmm. in the front row and we were like super enthused, always talking about it, but I never really were I never did anything for the campaign explicitly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's you know, for a lot of people too. You you we had just heard, you know, democratic socialism for the first time, I think, and became aware of it. And then, you know, sort of my two political tracks met where I had heard of democratic socialism, and then I was part of the, you know, you know, uh, interested in like the Bernie movement, and then also, you know, like I said, I I found more left politics through immigration. I started getting, more, I I moved to Jersey at around this time, um, and started trying to like learn about local politics, and I was like, you know what, I just want to get more involved in the community, and at that time, learned about Hudson County having a 287G program. So for those who don't know, the 287G program is a, um, a contract that ICE makes with um, local law enforcement uh, to collaborate essentially, where local law enforcement can write, they can be deputized to write ICE detainers, whatever. Point is, is that our local law enforcement was doing shitty things with ICE. And I was like, all right, I'm gonna go to a county meeting and speak out about this. And I went totally by myself just like this is something I care about. I want to check it out. And then having seen the litany of people speak out against the 287g program in Hudson, I learned that the majority of them were DSA people. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh, all right. You guys are doing some pretty dope shit. How do I, where do I sign up? And right on. That was pretty much it. And then like a month later, they ended up canceling the 287g contract. Um, which was a rare win. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But that was really cool. And that was ended up how how I started, like, officially taking on leftist politics and and becoming an organizer. I had done some stuff in Staten Island. Um, There's a local Planned Parenthood in Staten Island. Um, And, uh, you know, you can imagine that that's not the most popular place in Staten Island. So um, we in an effort to kind of raise awareness and and help give them uh, a little bit of a boost. We threw like a fundraiser for the local branch of Planned Parenthood. And that was really successful, but I wasn't like a leftist per se at the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: yeah and so just to backtrack just a little bit, what, what brought you to Jersey to begin with? What you just, just wanted to start a family in a, in a different environment or what?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, my wife and I wanted to move in together and, you know, I was commuting, my, I work in Manhattan and uh, the commute from Staten Island was like an hour and a half both ways charitably so you know I realized like all right I'm getting paid x but if you factor in my commute time I'm getting paid like nothing <laughs> and it was just a, a big waste of my day was commuting so I moved ultimately to West New York and my commute into the city was like 15 minutes and it was like right. one of the best things we ever did. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that neighborhood. That community uh, is, you know, no community is perfect, but that okay. neighborhood is, I loved it. And I love that apartment. I miss it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Where are you at now? I'm up in Bergen County now. Okay. Um, yeah. Right. I like it here too, but it's a different vibe. Right. How so? Um, I'm back to suburban life. Um, Like I grew up in Staten Island. Um, and yeah, I, there are some parts of it that I can dig now that I'm older, um, but I still miss, the like, walking down the block and hitting a bodega and, like, you know, saying what's up to people in the street and that sort of thing. Like, it's just a lot quieter here. Mm.
0: So when did you join um, DSA, shortly after that, um, that Hudson County meeting?
1: Yeah, I, I joined right after that Hudson County meeting, I think, um... And I got involved in the the local branch, which is in Hudson County. And I kind of got in the mix there and was just like really eager to get involved and learn what I needed to learn and do whatever. So I was like at every meeting and this is back when meetings were in person, which is mm-hmm. weird. Um, uh, but like, you know, tried to do whatever I could and got, and got involved in a lot of the immigrant justice work, which was, you know, a lot of protests and rallies and and speaking out at the uh, freeholder meetings and stuff like that. Then they were freeholders. Now they're county commissioners. But um, uh, yeah, that was kind of how I got in the mix. And then after a few months, I would say maybe six to eight months, um, there was a vacancy in the e-board and I became membership coordinator there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was in charge of kind of keeping all the uh, member roles and welcoming in new folks and stuff like that. And did that for a year which was an experience and i think i i learned a lot during that year I awesome. I cut, cut my teeth as an organizer i think you know because i didn't i uh well I, let me backtrack for a second actually sure, yeah. um so this all coincided with um trump being elected right and mm-hmm. it was all about um you know, I, I think a lot of people were just overwhelmed by, you know, how horrific that was. And I think I just felt like, all right, I, I need to do something. I can't just be passive here. Um, and I'm going to tell a little anecdote. I, after like, like maybe a week after the actual election, you know, I said, my, my wife was a, um, a social worker. So she came in contact with a lot of like local activist groups and organizing groups. Um, and we went to a meeting in the city in Manhattan, that was a a, a really far left wing, um, uh, uh, I guess, activist group or, you know, leftist, leftist org. Um, And we sat in a meeting and it was led by um, mostly black women and, and, and women of color. And the room was packed because everyone had, I guess, had similar experiences to me. Like, shit, what do we do? We got to do something. So let's just try to reach out to whoever we can and show up. And I remember like after the first 30 minutes or so people saying like, you know, how can we, what can we do? And then like a lot of kids or or, like younger people or people my age were like, you know, what can we do online? And I think that it must've bothered some of the people who that, who had been there a long time. And I remember one woman getting up and being like, you know, it's really nice that all of you will be here, but I know at the next meeting, not a single one of you will be here and that, you know, all you think you can do things online, but you don't put in the work. You're not going to show up to things. You're not going to like really learn what you need to learn. You're not going to commit. And so this needs bodies in the street and it means putting yourself at risk and like all this other shit. And <laughs> while I did not go back to the next meeting, I walked away from that meeting realizing like, I need to talk the talk. I need to walk the walk. I I can't just like, um, just talk shit and rant online. Right. And I I just need to actually be like I'm doing something. Um, And that coincided with me joining DSA and and becoming membership coordinator on the e-board and start organizing. Um, And I think, you know, i got some good talks about like, you know, being a white, cisgender, heterosexual male men in uh, organizing spaces and tried to internalize that like my role here is facilitative and not to be a leader per se um and i really tried my best as a younger sort of like new organizer to to do a lot of the ugly background work of of you know, spreadsheets and Googles and, you know, whatever, Google docs and stuff like that. Um, And I think that's what I most learned was how to organize things, but not take up too much space. I mean, unfortunately, I think I still do that if I'm going to be critical. Um, But uh, uh, yeah, I think that that's a value. I think I learned as membership coordinators try to uplift everyone around you and that that, is the best role you can have. Mm.
0: So talk about how you landed on this lean toward anarchisty mutual aid work that you do
1: now. So I think that some of this comes from the people who uh I would call my mentors in organizing, um, who tend to lean, you no know, libertarian socialist. Mm-hmm. Um in so far as how they view uh, hierarchies and stuff like that. Um, I guess I should say, I really don't feel like any left take tendency has all the right answers. And good that PSA's value is that it is all these tendencies sort of working, you know, ideally in good faith to sort of synthesize the better world, bringing the best of all sort of visions together, right? I, I don't think... Like, I, again, I, I tend to lean anarchism, but um, lately, um, but I don't, you know, I don't immediately think that anything else is wrong or, you know, uh, maybe this is the old value of just kind of being open to other ideas um, that I learned growing up, um, even if they seem wrong at first. Um, so, so it's not, I try not to have like a, like a, like a dogma about it. Mm -hmm. Um, But what happened was, I think, after the first Bernie campaign, and after some of the local battles, excuse me, in New Jersey's politics, which, you know, the electoral sphere of New Jersey politics is really just one of the fucking worst in the country. (laughs) I mean, it's all Democrats and they're all just absolute ghouls and monsters and, you know, not to be stereotypical, like just mobsters. Um, They, you know, in fighting them on immigrant issues like the ICE, so other than the 287G contracts, there's the four ICE contracts um, that. Hudson, Essex, Bergen, and there's one in Elizabeth um, has where they house ICE detainees um, and they're horrific. And I think in going to several of those meetings and voicing our concerns and our opinions and just no matter how many people turned out, no matter what arguments we made, no matter what, you know, there was just no... There was just nothing. It was all for nothing. And I think I was like, yeah, I mean, electoralism in New Jersey, just for me personally, and I don't want to discourage anyone else out there, but, um, for me personally, it was just a dead end. And it just seemed like, you know, even if I believe that, that whether you can petition this government or you can, um, elect someone who is good, um, it just seemed like it was, took so much time, so much effort, so much energy, so much money to get such a small win. It just seemed like not the strongest strategy to me. And so I just became more invested in, um, base building and direct actions. Um, and I think that, you know, electoralism is important and can happen, but there just needs to be, uh, a stronger base of support and then other things filtered in. Like, you know, I think, uh, someone who's elected shouldn't be a representative, but should be a spokesperson. Um, what do you mean by that? What, what, what what do you see as the difference? So, you know, under capitalism, we don't really have a lot of fucking time to be invested in, in, you know, pushing our elected leaders to do X, Y, and Z. And then even still, um even still it's like oh call your representative and you speak to some aide who like maybe checks a box on something and then reports back or whatever Mm -hmm. um but ultimately these decisions lie um totally in the hands of your representative right so you know if every member of a community voices their opinion against something, your representative, particularly because of New Jersey politics can just do whatever they want and claim it's what the community wanted. Right. There's no really, there's no real pushback. Mm -hmm. Um, And then even if there is, then you have to what wait until the next election. Mm -hmm. Um, So a spokesperson um, is different in that they have to do what the community wants. And I think that you know, if you create a like, like a municipalist model where, you know, just imagine a scenario where um, every issue that needs to be voted on or every issue that exists um, has a website, and you can go and log in your vote for each issue, and then no matter how that turns out, your representative has to commit to that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so ultimately, it's more directly democratic um and people might say oh well what if you're in a place like staten island for instance where it's very conservative and everyone's voting and you are not getting what you want well i think that puts a lot more power back in the hands of the organizers to then go out and build that base of support for that issue right um you know if if I mean, we can get into strategies or, or whatever, but ultimately, like, I want our representatives to be directly responsible for us and for all of us to be able to participate and direct the democracy instead of having someone who we, like, elect and then gets to do whatever they want when they're in office with no mm-hmm. real blowback until the next election. I don't know if I described that well. <laughs> no, I think
0: I think that's, that's good um, uh, discernment between the the two different things that you're talking about um you know some people especially if they don't run in you know left circles will hear the phrase libertarian socialist and think like well wait a minute hold on a second libertarians are you know ron paul and what does that have to do with socialism so not to put you on the spot like you're not a spokesman for a philosophy (laughs) but you know if you were to sort of in a nutshell say what libertarian socialism
1: encapsulates what would you say So I would, depends on who I'm speaking to, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that what's funny is that, you know, if you meet me in person in like a non-leftist space, I'm very normie, right? So it's when people in my non-political life ask me like, oh, what do you, you know, talk a bit about politics? And I'm like, oh, you know, I tend to lean anarchist. I I think that that surprises them. And I do that a little bit on purpose because it's meant to be like jarring, A little bit. And it's because it's a dirty word for a lot of people. Sure. Um, but I think that once, you know, just like anything, what is in in socialism, once you get into, you know, what values people have, I think there's a lot of, of things that uh people vibe with, right? And so, you know, if I'm talking to someone who's conservative and they're like, Oh, you're some crazy liberal, I'm like, No, I'm not a liberal. I'm much further a much worse than liberal to you (laughs) but i also you know in a lot of ways believe in small government for instance and they're like oh really that's interesting and you have a sort of base to discuss there and if i'm talking to somebody who's liberal um and they think oh um you know you're you're too radical to the left and i'm like well no i just believe in more direct democracy right and i I think that we can both vibe on you want as many people to vote on as much as possible, right? Um, I think people are like, yeah, I think that sounds cool. Like, and that's just kind of the doorway into these discussions that there's, you know, it's not really the whole horseshoe thing that people think it is. Um, you know, the, the political spectrum as it were is, is really much more complicated, I think, than people imagine it. And you just have to, I think, practice or imagine Uh, uh, issues or values that you can connect with people on. And it becomes much less scary than, than people imagine. You know, I, I, I take the workplace for instance, you know, I tell whoever, right. um, You know, you are, um, you know, we're supposedly in the land of the free, like the freest country in the world, but I was like, nowhere are you less free than you are in the workplace. Right. Um, You know, your, your time is micromanaged. You, you really don't have, a lot of freedom to say what you want, to do what you want, to choose your bosses, to choose your time of work, you know, whatever. I was like, imagine a scenario where your workplace was also democratic. Imagine you got to vote for who your manager was. Imagine you got to vote for, you know, what pay raises would be and, and what your, you know, your, your responsibilities at the job place are. And ultimately these are models for what I would consider libertarian socialism, um, you know, co-op models or whatever. And you have opportunities to engage with people about this. And, mm-hmm. and I don't think folks, you know, we're just conditioned to think that there's hierarchies in everything. Um, you know, you, you grow up listening to your parents, then you go to school and you listen to your teachers and you go to work and you listen to your bosses. And it's just, you know, there's always a hierarchy. And I think that, um, you know, that leaves a lot of people feeling alienated and isolated and, and powerless. And there's other ways to do it. And I think that just opening that door for people usually makes them at least interested Mm. and not like, Oh, you're one of those black block Molotov wheeling lunatics. And I'm like, well, you don't know that much about me.
0: (laughs) Right. 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 Yeah. So uh, do you want to talk about uh, the mutual aid projects you've been working on and how that fits into all this?
1: Yeah, so um thank you uh for giving that for giving that opportunity. Um I got into mutual aid um having an experience with um some old co-chairs uh from DSA when I first joined. And it was really just a one-off action um in pa- like uh, a train station or or somewhere in Patterson. And it was just a really cool vibe to just kind of like interact with people like wor- like working class people in such a, a real like human way just giving out food as they were like coming home late from work on like a really cold day and like you know we we interacted with some people who uh from the unhoused community and we you know people who were stressed out coming from work and just handing someone a coffee or like whatever it was just such a human moment mm. and so there's that immediate gratification of that but also you know, having an opportunity to, to speak with people. We met people who were like old school Black Panthers and like, old, you know, into, you know, people who were mixed up in uh, ACT UP back in the day and stuff like that. And you just got to have really dope conversations. You realize that, you know, left politics is in a lot of places you don't expect. Um, And getting to talk about where we were from and like, you know, what we were doing there and just vibing with people. And I think like, you know, I, again, we, we are just so acculturated to have, um, these very isolated myopic lives. Um, and we lose that sense of community and, and that and even, and, you know, DSA sort of often criticized for this, uh, for better or worse, but that like, you know, you just kind of lose that connection to the working class, uh, you know, um, and I think DSA, um, sorry, the mutual aid Organizing really lends itself to that, and, and teaches the organizers as much as it does, um, you know, provide resources to the community. So um, the story, as it goes, is you know, COVID hit, and we had been doing, you know, mutual aid uh, food distributions in Newark for a few months. We had to take a couple months off um because of covid and there was like a realizing like realization like you know shit this is really really bad um people are hurting what can we do and so one comrade from patterson um i'm gonna try not to mention any names although sure. i'd really love to give them credit but i don't know if they want to be outed um one comrade from patterson um uh, hit me up one night and was like Jeff, I I know you do some mutual aid stuff, like we need to get something together. What can we do? So, you know, we started off um, trying to expand our reach and provide resources and knowledge about the virus and like whatever was coming out. Remember, those those first few months were really, really hectic, like so much fear and uncertainty and like, Mm -hmm. just Jesus um and then, you know, we so we created a group online um and quickly got over a thousand people, just were looking for information or had resources and it was just a very collaborative effort. And then we realized, all right, well, we need to focus res- in like, you know, our respective communities. Um, so you know, I had a lot of connections and, and folks in Newark that I knew. And even though it wasn't directly from there, I was like, all right, let's get on a call. Let's see what we can come up with. So um, we started building our mutual aid network in in um, Newark. And then while that was going on, uh, I got a call from somebody out. Um, I got an email from somebody out in Suffolk County, Long Island, who was like, hey, um, we support the local um indigenous uh, uh, clan here, um, the uh, Shinnecock. And they also know someone in North Jersey, um, uh, the turtle clan who um, could use some support. And so, you know, the people who were involved in mutual aid efforts in Newark, we we had to take some time to realize like, all right, is this something we can get involved in? We can't half-ass it. We have to, you know, because of the, the sort of history of, of indigenous cultures being exploited even by, you know, leftists or, or you know, uh, uh, well-meaning people, like, quote unquote, allies. Like, we knew that if we were going to support the Turtle Clan, that we had to do it with a sort of seriousness um, and commitment that, you know, we, we um, need to make sure we were prepared for. Um, and after like a few weeks of discussions about how we can support and what we can do and whether or not we could do it, we developed our, what would become the Ramapola Nape Solidarity Project. And we've been helping, um, them, you know, at, at their lead, um, with any labor they needed for the community in terms of like food distributions, but also their, uh, farm work. Um, we can get into that a little bit, but, uh, you know, just providing labor as they needed it, and now recently we just started up a project in uh, in Bergen uh, called Hackensack River Mutual Aid, um, and it's really been really eye opening to see how much folks in Bergen County are really kind of unaware of what's happening in their commun- own communities, mm-hmm. um, and how much need there is. You know, Bergen County is the fourth wealthiest county in New Jersey. Um, and it's built off the backs of, you know, undocumented people and, and, you know, people at risk of being evicted. And, and there's, there's a big unhoused community, um, in Bergen County. And it's just, you know, the, the, the sort of conflict there is really glaring. Um, and what Mutual Aid does in these situations is it really grounds the organizing and it base builds. Um, and I think that that's, what's important is it. It creates a space where folks can come together and um, have sort of casual political conversations because the, the act of giving resources away for free and engaging and organizing with people who have agency in those organizing spaces um, is something that people are not used to and that alone is political. And then you just get to move on from there. Um, I think it's been really great for the three projects you've been involved in in newark mm. and hackensack and then uh up in ringwood and and, and newton mm. sorry that was a long answer
0: <laughs> no no that's that's fine That's uh, kind of what i was looking for was a description of of the projects that you that you've got going so how do you um how do you find time to uh be a be a dad to a little one and work on all this, these on the ground projects and, you know, be a good partner. And and what's that, what's, what's juggling all that like for Jeff? Uh,
1: I don't find time. (laughs) You know, people, people ask like, how how do you do it? And I always say, I I do nothing well. Um, And maybe I'm, I'm being, you know, self-deprecating a little bit, but it's hard. It's, it's, um, you know, you spend a little time doing, one while you're doing the other, which means that you're, you know, if I'm being critical, you're never really in the moment or focused on something. There are lots of times when I'm with my son and I'll get a text message like, Oh, someone is about to be evicted or, you know, is in urgent need of groceries because they can't feed their three-year-old or whatever. And yeah, you do have to take a second to kind of address an issue or, or whatever. But, um, you know, also it's about, compartmentalizing and just making sure that you're focusing on who you need to be focusing on. And it does get tough. Um, uh, I, there's lots of burnout and exhaustion, but also I, I think, you know, organizing for me became both like my, my me time thing. So I, you know, spend lovely days with my family and I, I you know, I, I, work a lot, but also I'm lucky to be working, um, through COVID, but also, um, you know, like, like this right now, like my, my me time is talking, excuse me, but is, um, about, uh, you know, being involved in leftist politics and it, it makes me feel good. Um, and really, if I want to get sort of deep in it, right. I have what probably a lot of parents have a lot of guilt, about, you know, like I'm raising my child in this awful world, right? And mm-hmm. I think that, um, you know, I'm sure people throughout history have always felt that. Um, but also I just feel like if I'm not actively doing something to do it, then to, to try to fix it in some way or try to do my part, I think that that's, that's how I balance myself. I need to do it. Otherwise I'm going to feel like I'm not doing enough. Hmm. It's more like, like compulsion than anything else.
0: Interesting. Yeah.
1: A lot. I mean, you know,
0: I, I ask folks sometimes, I, I haven't had many parents on the show. It's just kind of who I know. Right. But um, you know, I, I, I've asked a couple of them, like how has having a kid changed you? And, and it kind of sounds like it's, it's deepened your commitment to organizing.
1: Yeah, it's definitely deepened my commitment. Um, and uh, it's definitely, like I was saying, like, it's, I, I do love, like, it's a beautiful struggle, right? And I am in, in love with the work and with my comrades in a lot of ways. Um, and I think that's really what it's about. Um, but it is, it is a struggle, um and so a lot of ways it's it's hard and you have to find your balances you know people talk about self-care and being mindful of yourself and like you know also taking time to you know make sure you know you're in a good place and who you are when you what you bring to the to the organizing world but also like the other direction is like um you know I, i feel a sense of urgency you know the the climate crisis and immigration and just injustices with police right and and um, just uh, everything right Um, I think really just compels me to I have to be doing something otherwise I feel like I'm contributing to the problem
0: hmm. right on and that's uh, that's why we do what we do with the organizations that we work with well I really want to thank you for taking time on a Sunday evening kind of late at night here past uh, past at least at least past the kids bedtime if not your own And um, for for, you know, coming down and and having a conversation with me and uh, really appreciate your time. And uh, thanks. And thank you. Okay, so that was my conversation with my comrade, Jeff. I'm hoping that some of these profiles of socialists serve to humanize them. And make some of the concepts of socialism less mysterious to folks. You can find more information on BrianTalksToHumans.net, including social media links and a contact email. That's about it from me. Thanks for listening. Stay human.